Amen. Well, I heard a, a humorous story this week that I couldn't pa uh, resist passing along. Suzanne's looking at me because I think she knows what's coming. <clears throat> but a, a certain fella had married a wife who had a cat. And uh, actually, it would probably be better to say the cat had her. I mean, she loved that cat. She stroked it. She combed its fur. She fed it. She pampered it. That cat had her wrapped around its little paw. <clears throat> but uh, the man, on the other hand, really hated the cat. I mean, he was allergic to cat hair. He hated the smell of the litter box. He just couldn't stand the scratching on the furniture. And, and he couldn't get a good night's sleep because the cat was always jumping on the bed with him. Well, one time when his wife was out of town for the weekend... He decided to get rid of the cat, uh, and we'll just leave it at that. I mean, no sense in going into the details of how he might have gotten rid of the cat. It's really not germane to the story. <clears throat> but anyway, he decided to get rid of the cat and tell his wife that it must have run off. So his wife returned and, and couldn't find her cat, and she was overwhelmed with grief. So her caring, loving husband said, look, honey, I know how much that cat meant to you. And I'm going to put an ad in the paper, and I'm going to give a reward of $500 to anyone who finds your cat. Well, of course, no cat showed up, so a few days later he said, Honey, you mean more than anything else on the earth to me, and if that cat is precious to you, it's precious to me. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to buy another ad, and I'm going to raise the ante. I'm going to increase the reward to $1,000. Well, a friend of this fellow's saw the ad and called him up and said, Man, you must be nuts. There, there's not a cat on the earth that's worth $1,000. By the way, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. But anyway, um, so then the fellow replied, Well, when you know what I know, you can afford to be generous. <laughs> so, and by the way, Suzanne, for the record, no cats were harmed or mistreated during the telling of this joke. Just want to say. So deception is what we're going to talk about this morning. Deception, obviously, in the form of a joke. Uh, even one that's not particularly funny, uh, is one thing, pretty benign, but deception can actually be very, very uh, serious. And I've uh, been studying and, and writing and talking about deception for about 15 years when the Lord really opened my eyes to the way things really work in this world and Satan's MO going back to Genesis 3 and his plan for deception. Uh, but there are several reasons this is important before we get to our text in the book of Acts. Uh, for example, 1 Timothy 4.1 says, The Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. In 2 Timothy, Paul reminds us that evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. In other words, deception gets worse and worse over the course of the last 2,000 years since Paul first wrote those words in 67 A.D. John wrote, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. And this is a deceiver and an antichrist. Jesus himself, uh, just hours before he was betrayed, uh, maybe 20, within 24 hours he would be arrested. And he said to his disciples when they wanted to know what would be the sign of the end of the age and the coming kingdom, he said, Look, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. It's a very important concept in Scripture, a very important principle to understand deception and to be on the alert for uh, deception. And when we come to Acts chapter 21, 
And we're going to kind of pick up where we left off two weeks ago. You know, last week we took a one-week break from Acts to talk about uh, the sanctity of life. But in our text this morning, we pick up with Paul in Jerusalem, uh, where he's confronted by a mob of deceived, unbelieving Jewish enemies. And they wanted to kill him. And these Jewish unbelievers had come to believe that Paul was a problem, a big problem. And they believed this because they were deceived. They had believed false truths about him, and they had accepted rumors as fact. And so, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the events that Luke records, starting in 2117, verse 17, all the way to 23, verse 35, cover just 12 days. And, uh, and, and then the ones following that, from chapter 24 all the way to the end of the book, chapter 20, uh, well, actually till 26, uh, give us, cover about two years when Paul's in prison. But uh, in our text here this morning, he arrives in Jerusalem, as we said, in 57 AD. It's actually May 25th, the eve of Pentecost that year. And he meets James and the apostles a few days later on May 28th. And then he gets arrested on June 2nd. And so in our text, we're dealing with about an eight-day span of things that take place. And as I read this historical account, what really jumped off the page to me is five unique characteristics of those who are deceived. Those troublemakers in Jerusalem were deceived. They were blinded to the truth. And uh, we're going to be looking at a a pretty large section of text, as, uh, as you saw on the screen there. So I've kind of broken it down into five sections. And each section shows us something about people who are blinded to the truth. The first section, and this goes back to kind of overlapping a little bit about what we talked about two weeks ago, but for context, I wanted to go back and review that, plus it's been a couple of weeks. But I call this first section the rumor, and what this section is just one verse, what it teaches us is that the deceived are irrational. Quite often, the deceived are irrational. They don't care about the facts. They're operating on emotion. And that's what deception does. It appeals to people's emotions rather than the intellect. So if you go back to chapter 21, it says, this is the Jewish leaders, James and the other, uh, actually, church leaders in Jerusalem talking to Paul when he arrives there. And they, he sa- they say, they have been informed about you. In other words, you know, they've been convinced, Paul, these, these Jewish unbelievers, that you teach that all Jews who are among the Gentiles uh, or should forsake Moses, saying they ought not to circumcise their children and not walk according to the customs. See, people who are deceived are not known for being rational thinkers. Paul, by no means, taught this. Uh, he never suggested in any of his teachings after he became a Christian that Jewish believers somehow needed to abandon the traditions and abandon their heritage as the people of Israel. So that was a spurious lie, but no matter, the people that believed it didn't take the time to check it out. They just swallowed it hook, line, and uh, sinker. So the the Jerusalem leaders, the elders, the believers, were in somewhat of a bind. On the one hand, they, of course, had supported Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, 
And that's what we read about way back in Acts 15 when they got together early in the days of the church after Paul's first missionary journey. And they were struggling with this Jew and Gentile in one body concept. And it was, it was kind of a messy time in the early days of the church. And so they made it clear, made a decisive decision that indeed Gentiles could be saved by faith the same way Jews are saved by faith. And that those uh, you know Gentiles could, should be welcomed into the church. And so they'd already taken their stand. But now, some years later... You know, that was in 50 AD. Now we're seven more years down the road. Many more Gentiles are getting saved as a result of Paul's missionary journeys. And so these, you know, church leaders in Jerusalem, where Paul was visiting with them at this moment, had come to realize that Paul was kind of persona non grata in the church. And these Jewish believers were concerned about it. And so the church leaders didn't want to reject Paul because, first of all, they knew he was right. And this was God's ordained ministry for him. But also, they'd already kind of taken a stand. So what should they do? Uh, well, you know, as we're going to see in a moment, they came up with a plan, a response to this uh, rumor uh, that they thought would accomplish uh, the goal of, you know, both affirming Paul, yet addressing the concerns of these misinformed, uh, you know, Jewish unbelievers. So the issue here is a rumor. And that's how deception starts. People hear things, and then they're not able to really, or don't take the time to really check it out and look at the facts of the matter. Proverbs reminds us, do not be a witness against your neighbor without cause, for would you deceive with your lips? You know, often we base our decisions on misinformation and disinformation, but we need to think rationally when facing certain situations. We need to think before we act, and this mob did not do that, and of course it gets worse. Paul said in Romans, which he had just written just months before he showed up in Jerusalem. He says, I urge you, brethren, to note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve the Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and watch this, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. So the first characteristic of those who are blinded to the truth, uh, is that they are irrational. They don't think analytically. They gobble up these smooth words and flattering speech that they hear from others. And I hope that that doesn't describe you. I hope that you're not one of those whose hearts is simple. But let's, let's read on in this historical narrative here. How did the church leaders respond? What was the response? And I kind of marked this out in verses 22 to 26. Again, this is still a passage we looked at two weeks ago, but it's setting the stage for some other characteristics of the deceived that we're going to look at. But the elders had a plan to prove to the Jewish Christians anyway, as we're going to see, they, they, there was no hope for the unbelievers. They were set in their ways. They weren't going to listen to reason. But the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, uh, that they wanted to teach them that Paul had not, in fact, abandoned the customs of the Jews. Uh, and so the next thing we see as a characteristic of the blinded is that they're inattentive. They don't notice the situation. They're not paying attention. I mean, obviously, Paul was not anti-Semitic, but they didn't see it, even though uh, because of this response that the elders came up with, they were able to display it in full living color right before their eyes. What did they do? He says, here's what we tell you, Paul. We've got four men who've taken a vow, four Jews. Uh, we want you to take them and be purified with them. Uh, you know, according to Jewish custom, when you've taken a vow, you're not, uh, you know, 
uh, you're not obligated to take a vow, but if you take one, you're obligated to fulfill it. It was a, a temporary vow. Paul had done this, if you remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago in chapter 18. Paul had taken a vow. But anyway, at the end of that kind of a vow, you're required to bring an offering to the temple. And the elders suggested that Paul should go with these men, join in with them, purify himself uh, as part of the temple worship, and thereby show his support for Jewish customs by paying their offerings for them. And, and the reason is they said that all may know that those things of which you they were informed, in other words, those rumors that they had heard, were nothing. They're not true. Um, and, uh, and, and also it will show them that you yourself actually do keep the Jewish customs when it's appropriate to do so. All Paul had taught was that it's not what saves you. You don't have to keep the, the law to be saved. You don't have to be circumcised to go to heaven. But if that's your culture, there's nothing wrong with it as long as you understand it in its context. And so, uh, but of course, even though Paul did this, these people were completely inattentive. They didn't pay attention. And, you know, we, we notice how surprisingly easy it is, even for God's people, sometimes to be uh, deceived. And that's why the New Testament repeatedly cautions against it. Uh, Paul, for example, in his later letter, they, he would write while he's in prison in Rome, which he heads to after he gets arrested in Jerusalem, he's sent off to Rome. He would say, this I say to you, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Now, he's writing this to believers in Colossae. Um, in, in a parallel passage, another one of his prison epistles that he wrote from Rome, he says to the Ephesians, we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. In other words, we should always consider the motive behind those who are purveying rumors and trying to discredit God's servants. These mobsters didn't even take the time to consider the reality of the situation. They didn't look at what was happening right before their eyes. How could Paul be both, you know, disregarding Jewish customs and fulfilling them at the same time? Of course he couldn't. They just jumped on the, the Paul is anti-Semitic bandwagon without even noticing all the counter evidence before their eyes. So we see the rumor, then we see the response, and then things really start to heat up. We see a riot that ensues, the riot. And I think this teaches us a third characteristic of the blinded, and that is they are ignorant. The deceived are ignorant. And in this next section, the ignorance of those deceived Jewish unbelievers really comes out. They jump to conclusions. They make assumptions about uh, you know, who this man was in the temple that we're about to read about. And, and they never did any research. They didn't check it out. So what happens? Well, after Paul takes this vow, he, he joins in with these four men. He fulfills the custom. It says, when the seven days, talking about the days of purification, were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, this is talking about unbelieving Jews, most likely from Ephesus. Remember, Paul had just come from Ephesus where there had been another riot. And so it's probably the same culprits. But he says, the text says, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. You know, this is a desperate situation. We've got this terrible man, Paul, in the temple. And notice what they said. And this is where their ignorance really shines. This, and by the way, that's giving them the benefit of the doubt. I'm sure there were some instigators in that crowd who knew this was a lie and said it anyway. But they cry out, this is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law and the, this place. And notice, and furthermore, 
he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. I mean, why would they say that? Why would they say that about Paul, that last part in red there? Was it a blatant lie? Well, let's read on. Luke actually gives us in parenthesis, this is his parenthetical, and explains why they were saying that. He says, For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with Paul in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had then brought into the temple. That's why the mob reacted the way they did. They ignorantly jumped to conclusions. Trophimus, we know, was uh, the Ephesian Gentile that was Paul's traveling companion. He first is mentioned in chapter 20. We looked at that a few weeks ago. Uh, and he was Paul's traveling companion. Companion, And they had seen Paul and Trophimus together in, in, you know, it, to, around the city. And so they just assumed that Paul had brought this Gentile inside this sacred enclosure, past which Gentiles were not allowed to go, inside the temple. Um, so if you want to look at some kind of historical context here, I've got a couple of charts on the screen. I'm hoping you can kind of uh, see this uh, clearly. And if not, I'll I've got another one here I'll show. But if you can see my red pointer, this outer part, these are steps. It's kind of hard to see. It's not very good 3D. But those are the steps that lead up to the Temple Mount there. And there's these barriers. And out here, all around, that's where the Gentiles were allowed to go. But they were not allowed to go inside the court of the women or the court of the Israelites or certainly not the court of the priests. And then, of course, you come over here to the holy place and the most holy place and so forth. Uh, but the Jews were not permitted uh, you know, to go in there. They were only allowed in the outside, outer courtyard of, of the temple area. In fact, it was a, a crime punishable by death. Uh, Jewish men like Paul who were not priests or Levites, they could go in but no further than the court of the Gentiles, kind of right here in this, this part, heading towards the holy place. Um, but according to Josephus, that first century Jewish historian, the priests had posted notices all around prohibiting Gentiles from entering beyond this sacred enclosure. Um, and these notices were in Latin and Greek, and they were placed at the various at the barriers at various strategic points. And archaeologists have actually discovered some of these notices. One of them, translated, reads, quote, No man of another nation to enter within the fence and enclosure around the temple, and whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his death that ensues. So they were pretty clear. Uh, you know, enter at your own risk, you know. Sounds like some conservatives that have no trespassing signs uh, around their property, you know, these days. It's a, you know, uh, uh, no trespassing. Trespassers will be shot, you know, that kind of a thing, right? Um, the, the Romans, by the way, allowed the Jews in the Roman law to execute any Gentile, even if it was a Roman citizen, for proceeding beyond this stone uh, barrier. So here's another uh, kind of 3D vantage point. And again, if you want to see kind of where the Gentiles could go, all around down here, no problem. This is where Gentiles would, would lay at the gates and they take alms or request alms and so forth. But, uh, and you might even, you know, come up on the stairs a little bit. But the closer you got to these gates here that would enter in, the more uneasy, uh, you know, the Jews became. Um, and so uh, 
Paul, uh, the Luke goes on to tell us all the city was disturbed because of this rumor that Paul had brought Trophimus into the sacred area. And they ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And immediately the doors were shut. So this, this rumor, rumors play a central role in deception. We've already talked about that. Of Paul's alleged capital offense by bringing a Gentile in there quickly spread throughout Jerusalem. I mean, this was big news. You know, this doesn't happen every day. Few people ever dared to go in where they are not allowed to go. Uh, and by the way, in that day, the perspective of unbelieving Jews, you know, this had been some 400 years since the, the prophet Malachi had last revealed God's revelation in the written form. And over those 400 years, the Jews drifted further and further away from the proper understanding of God's law. And by this time, their perspective on the temple, temple was very similar to the pagan Gentile perspective on you know, the temples of Artemis and the Greek gods and goddesses and so forth. Uh, they weren't believers. They, they kind of were worshiping the icons more than God himself that these, the temple was supposed to represent. So eventually they, these, they dragged Paul out and, uh, and the priests then closed the doors because the priests were kind of the guardians of the temple to keep this mayhem that was ensuing from drifting over inadvertently in through the gates and into this sacred area. They didn't want any bloodshed in the, the, the temple. And so the next section then is the rescue. So Paul's in dire straits. Rumors and deception have led people to mistreat him. And the next thing that we learn about those who are blinded to the truth is that they are impulsive. They are impulsive. In fact, you know, the, the passage we just read, verse 30, remember it said, all the city was disturbed. They ran together. They seized uh, Paul. I mean, those are not the, 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 the actions of reasoned thought. Those are impulsive actions. They're reckless and hasty. And so Luke goes on, as they were seeking to kill him, news of the commander of the garrison, news came to the commander of the garrison, that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. And uh, the commander, the Roman commander, uh, was kind of housed there in the fortress of Antonia. If you see in this diagram here, up in the top, uh, sort of the northwest corner there, this is uh, what uh, Herod had built to house, uh, you know, the, uh, the commander of the uh, 10th Legion is, is what it was. You can see from this zooming in here that Three of the towers there were 86 feet high. The fourth one in the foreground there was 120 feet high. Josephus, again, not inspired writer, but a very excellent historian of the first century that gives us some insight. Uh, he had basically reminds us that, uh, the, that from that top of that fourth temple, the fourth the tower there, 120 feet high, you could see the entire area of the temple. I'm sure it was spectacular. But the, the Antonia Fortress... Uh, is what housed the soldiers of the 10th Legion. The commander's name, we find out later in chapter 23, was Claudius Lysias, and Claudius Lysias was responsible for a 1,000 soldiers stationed there. Uh, this was, uh, you know, 10 uh, centurions. A centurion, as the name kind of indicates, is a commander of a 100 century soldiers. So 10 centurions, each with 100 soldiers under them, a 1,000 soldiers were stationed here on the northwest corner of this uh, temple. Uh, Herod, of course, had, had built this. So uh, the Levites, as I mentioned, were the ones that were really in charge of the temple. They were the Jews. They kind of kept the peace. But the Roman troops 
were responsible under the Roman emperor for keeping peace in the whole city. And if anything was afoot that was going to upset the peace, they were ready to step in. And that's exactly what they do here. So going back to verses 31 and 32, news came to the commander, Claudius Lysias, that all Jerusalem was in uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And notice, when the Jews saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. One thing that Rome insisted on was civil order. And uh, a riot was an unforgivable sin, both for the people who staged it and certainly for the commander who let it happen and didn't get it under swift control. Uh, this is the sixth time so far in Luke's historical account of the early church in the book of Acts that we see Paul's ministry igniting some type of riot or public uh, disturbance. So we read on, the commander came near, took him, and commanded him to be bound with two chains. So Paul is now arrested. And this pretty much is a turning point in the narrative from here till the end of the book of Acts. Paul is under uh, chains. Um, they chained him up between two Roman guards. Uh, this is a very common technique. We saw that earlier with Peter back in chapter 12 of Luke. And when the commander tried to learn who Paul was and what he had done from some members of the crowd, he got conflicting information. So he brings Paul back to the barracks or the you know, the fortress of Antonia. Uh, so again, looking at the text, he asked who he was and what he had done, and some of the multitude cried one thing, some another. Of course, they didn't know what was going on. They just heard this vicious rumor that a Gentile had crossed into the sacred area, and so they were out for blood. But the commander, when he couldn't ascertain the truth, because uh, that's the way deception works, it's hard to get to truth when you're clouded with deception. Uh, he commanded them to be taken back to the barracks. And when he reached the stairs, uh, he had to be carried by the soldiers because the, of the violence of the mob. This is Paul. So the soldiers actually had to carry him to protect him. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, Away with him! Away with him! Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Uh, this is uh, you know, the fury of the Jews. They wanted to tear Paul apart on the spot. And that phrase, away with him, recalls the words of Jesus 24 years earlier when the mob had said the same thing. Give us Barabbas, away with Jesus. So uh, the, the uh, fortress of Antonia was the prison from which the angel had freed Peter. We read that back in Acts 12. Remember that? And then he goes to where the church was praying for him and they don't even recognize him. Don't bother us, Peter. We're praying for our friend Peter to be freed from prison. <laughs> you know, remember when he knocked at the door? Uh, but this was also the same fortress where they had took Jesus for his trial before Pilate in that hastily arranged, you know, few hours between his betrayal in the garden and his uh, walk up the Via Dolorosa. In fact, the Via Dolorosa, as you see up here in the top left, is connected to the exit from the Antonia Fortress. And Jesus was led after he was, you know, hastily tried in that kangaroo court up the Via Dolorosa. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you can still see that road today. Here's a couple of modern-day uh, images of the Via Dolorosa. You can just picture Jesus trying to carry his own cross as he makes his way to that hill outside Jerusalem where he's crucified and atones for our sins. There's some you know, Jewish children just playing, I don't know, marbles or something in that area. just kind of t struck me when I saw that image of just... Uh, in the same way that the deceived are completely oblivious to what 
is really happening and what the truth is. People probably walk today, unbelieving Jews probably walk that road every day and have no understanding of the significance in terms of the atoning work of our Savior. And then, you know, finally we see in the final section Paul's defense. Now we're not going to read this whole section. It's pretty lengthy, but I am going to summarize it for you. But this final section where Paul gives a rational defense to this uh, crazy accusations teaches us a fifth thing, and that is that the deceived are intransigent. There's absolutely no convincing them that they are wrong. They are digging in their heels no matter how much the truth and the evidence or the science might say otherwise. And so uh, as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I speak to you? Uh, And he replied, can you speak Greek? And then notice this, yet another rumor. I mean, rumors are running rampant. There's all kinds of assuming going on in the chaos of this deception, which is why it's so important for us in these great last days of deception to stay in the Word of God, study the facts, and make sure we separate fact from fiction. But this uh, commander says, aren't you the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? So according to Josephus, Uh, there had been this Egyptian that had claimed to be a prophet of God and announced that the wall of Jerusalem would collapse upon his command. And he further claimed that he would lead his followers from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem where they would defeat the Romans and throw off their yoke. But the Romans historically caught wind of this plan, attacked this Egyptian and his followers before they, or attacked attacked his followers, the Egyptian leader of this mob escaped, but they attacked them before they could get into the city. And uh, Josephus tells us that these men came from the ranks of the assassins, literally the dagger men. And they were radicals who would secretly mingle in with crowds holding daggers hidden underneath their cloaks. And then they would stab to death any Romans secretly without, you know, all of a sudden this Roman would drop dead and the, whoever did it was off, you know, and you didn't even know what had happened. And they would also stab to death any Jews who were pro-Roman uh, So the commander, again, Claudius Lysias, evidently thought that this Egyptian freedom fighter had to return. He didn't have a clue who Paul was. He's just doing his job, guarding the fortress, keeping the peace. There's this big uproar between the Jews and the Gentiles, and he jumps to conclusions and assumes that Paul is this Egyptian who's come back to try to instigate some other attack on Rome. But Paul explained, he goes on, I am a Jew from Tarsus. In Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So Paul basically says, look, I have a right to be in the temple court because I'm a Jew, and I'm also a Roman citizen, so you're not supposed to be restraining me. And by the way, Tarsus, Paul's hometown, was one of three primary cities of ancient learning in Rome, the other two, Athens and Alexandria. We hear a lot about Athens and Alexandria But when we think of Tarsus, we generally, if we know the Bible, think of Paul. But we don't realize it was also a pretty highly esteemed city where Paul had been brought up. So, when he had given him permission, Paul then stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. Uh, Once the commander heard Paul's credentials, he quickly changed his uh, tune. And then when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language. So don't be confused by that. The Greek there means the language that the Hebrew people spoke, which in this time was Aramaic. 
So Paul's speaking to them in Aramaic. And he says, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. Notice how he addresses them. I'm one of you. Brethren, those of you that are Jewish believers, you've come to faith in Christ, so you're part of the brothers in Christ. We're brothers in Christ. And also, you fathers, you Jewish leaders, that I'm part of your heritage. I'm a Jew as well. Hear my defense before you now. And he gives a pretty rational defense. But when they heard that, they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language. They kept all the more silent. And then uh, he said... So I'm just going to summarize his speech. He begins the body of his speech by relating his manner of life before his conversion, that he was raised in an Orthodox Jewish background. He was educated under you know, one of the most respected Jewish teachers of his day, Gamaliel. And then he next talks about his conversion and where he met the Lord Jesus on the road uh, to Damascus and how that revelation is what accounted for the radical change in his life. And then he stresses... Uh, that his encounter with God was an event that God had initiated. Paul hadn't just gone out searching for some new sect or way. God reached out to Paul. Jesus of Nazareth reached out to Paul on the road. So how did the mob respond to this speech? And I encourage you to go back and read the whole speech. Um, well, they were intransigent. They were immovable. Notice when he, when he says these words at the very end of his speech, depart, he's quoting what the Lord said to him. When he said to me, depart, I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. Paul dared to use that dirty, rotten word, Gentiles. It says, Luke tells us, they listened to him until this word, and then they raised their voices and said again, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he's not fit to live. You know, Jews throughout history, throughout their history, have taken messages from God to Gentiles many times. And that's not what infuriated Paul's audience. What upset them was that Paul was approaching Gentiles directly about the Messiah without first introducing them to the customs and traditions and feasts and festivals and rituals of the Jewish tradition. I mean, basically, he was putting Gentiles on the same footing before God uh, as Jews which, of course, they are, because all people must come to God through faith the same way. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. But to a Jew, an unbelieving Jew in the first century, this was the height of heresy, to suggest that Jews and Gentiles were somehow equal. So notwithstanding Paul's rational defense, how he made his case, they were so deceived, and as you've heard me say many times, it's easier to deceive people than to convince them they've been deceived, and they would have none of it. And so the mob mentality uh, continued, and they reacted very violently uh, toward him. So we'll stop here in the narrative. We'll pick it up again next week. But I want us to make sure we understand the context. When you, when you teach a large book of the Bible like Acts over many uh, months, it's kind of hard sometimes to keep you know, in mind the picture. So based on Luke's account in Luke and Acts, which remember those are part one and part two of the same book, uh, and Luke together wrote more of the New Testament than any other single writer. He wrote more than Paul. So between his gospel and his historical account of the early church in Acts, we've seen how the people of Israel had already been involved in three murders, John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, and Stephen. And they would have committed a fourth if, Paul, if God had not delivered Paul uh, through using this Roman guard's intervention. And according to Luke's account, We've seen Jesus, Peter, John, Stephen, and now Paul all mistreated or murdered, as I said. 
this is essentially a key moment in the progression of the people of Israel in rejecting salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ, rejecting that Jesus is the Messiah. Within 13 years from this account, the city of Jerusalem would be destroyed, the temple would be torn down, and Israel would no longer be a nation. And they would not be a nation again, by the way, from 70 A.D. all the way up to when? 1948, which is yet probably the biggest sign of the times in our day that you and I get to be living in, you know, when, when we're seeing prophecy fulfilled before us, the last of the last days. Um, and uh, so Israel, you know, is destroyed. Doesn't mean they're permanently destroyed. We know they're going to be you know, reconstituted. The Bible is very clear about that. But this is a pivotal moment. So again, the five characteristics of the deceived. It starts by being irrational. They don't care about the facts. They're operating on emotion. Then they're inattentive. They don't even pay attention to what's happening right before their eyes. You know, that's, that's what you see with someone who's deceived. Okay, so they, you know, they were you know, irrational. They were, you know, based on making conclusions based on fear and emotion. But then you give them the facts and, you, and for any thinking person, you go, oh, that ought to correct them. But they go, uh, no thanks, I'm not interested in the facts. And then we see their ignorance highlighted. And then we see their impulsive behavior. Uh, they're not acting based on reasoned thought. And then they become immovable, uh, intransigent, unwilling to change their view. So what's the takeaway as we think about characteristics of deception. Well, I would just say this. Don't believe everything you hear. You know, I am seeing more and more as the Lord continues to bless Plum Creek Chapel and he continues to bless NBW Ministries. I'm seeing more and more uh, people drawn away by deception. And there's just this like inverse relationship. The, the more God blesses those who proclaim the truth, proclaim the gospel, and teach the soon coming of our Lord, the further away those that are deceived get from God's Word. And we need to stick together. We need to stand firm on the Word of God. And we need to make sure that we're not guilty of any of these characteristics of the deceived, that we can separate fact from friction, rumor and innuendo from reality. So don't believe everything you hear. Let's pray together. Father, I do thank you for this uh, pretty interesting section in the book of Acts as we see a lot going on in this uh, narrative. Uh, Lord, we, we, we can take away from this just how easy it is to be deceived. And Lord, uh, nothing's changed. In fact, as your word says, it's gotten worse. And so I pray that you would protect us from deception, that you would raise up men, women, and young people who are willing to stand firm for the truth. And most of all, that if there's anyone here within the sound of my voice that doesn't know your Son and our Savior, they would recognize that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And as Ken talked about at the outset of our service, we just pray that your Holy Spirit would convict anyone here today of their need for a Savior and their lostness and their sin, and that in simple childlike faith they would come to Jesus and trust in Him alone for salvation. And we pray all this in His precious name. Amen.